Welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com, and joining us today, he is the man who played Ernie Dalrymple in the 2006 film by Tim Skuzen, The Sasquatch Gang, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? <laughs> I'm doing very good. Um, you know, when you... We, we flew up to Oregon to do the Sasquatch Dumpling Gang, David, the Sasquatch Dumpling Gang. And uh, the, the difficulty of when you have one scene in a low-budget movie is that it kind of acts as an exponent on low budget because people think, like, you are not even that significant in the realm of this low-budget film. So I had my costume fitting the day – I was going to shoot uh, my scene for the Sasquatch Dumpling Gang, which, by the way, is a delightful film. Got a lot of people who love that movie. So I arrived on the set, and there was a a kind of, I don't know how to say, a a, uh, costume malfunction in, in that they got my sizes wrong. But when you're having your costume fitting the very day you're shooting, that doesn't leave a lot of cushion for uh, taking care of a problem like that. So I am literally, yes, literally (laughs) for those of you who are thinking of buying me that nice vest, uh, I am a 46 long, 46 long. However, the people who got my clothes got 38 regulars. So (laughs) there was no time for editing. So I am wearing a pair of pants that could not be buckled around my waist. And so they were open. Uh, and I put a coat over them, a coat which came to about – my sleeve came to about the forearm. So nothing I'm wearing – I, I felt like I was Jack and the Beanstalk. I, I was the giant and Jack and the Beanstalk with these clothes. They were way too small for me. Uh, but we, we managed to shoot the scene anyway, and I held everything together with clothespins so my pants wouldn't fall off. And I tried to make my coat look like I was being Don Johnson in Miami Vice and just kind of push those sleeves up to look kind of uh, cool. I don't think I look cool, <laughs> but nobody <laughs> commented on the clothes. Interesting. Well, you know, Stephen, by the way, you say it's Sasquatch Dumpling Gang. Uh, I look it up, and it's uh, also known as the Sasquatch Gang, or that's the listing in IMDb now. So I wonder what made them get rid of that dumpling in the title. That's curious. You know, they hire they hired these publicity um, research groups that go out and they give names to people and say, would you go see this movie? Right. I the definitely Sas- would see the Sasquatch Gang myself, but if it was the Sasquatch Dumpling Gang, forget about it, Stephen. That's what my <laughs> There you go. Is. Yeah. So there, you know, I was, I was in one film. Uh, it was called The Moon Watcher, and they, they put it out to one of those groups, research groups, and they came back and the – people that were head of the research group said people will not see movies that begin with the letter M. Of course, this was two years before Moonstruck won all the Academy Awards, but we changed our name from Moonwatcher to Nobody's Fool. And this is not to be confused with the Paul Newman's Nobody's Fool. And how did the movie do? The movie didn't do as well as the Paul Newman's Nobody's Fool, but... (laughs) I, it was a good movie. I mean, it, it was a good movie. Uh, there may even be a podcast in that one, David, right, now that well, you we'll say look forward it. to that. Mm. But speaking about movies you worked on in the past, Stephen, ever since we've started The Tobolowski Files, there is one film 
that people have really wanted to know about your involvement in. And what is that film, Stephen? One of the first recommendations I got and constant recommendations is people want to know about my involvement with True Stories, uh, the film by David Byrne featuring David and the Talking Heads. People on the IMDb see that I am listed as the screenwriter on Talking Heads. They want to know, is, is that true? Was I the screenwriter of True Stories? And I guess <laughs> I never quite knew how to do a movie story about a movie that I wasn't in. But I wanted to try today because I want to tell you, David, and everyone out there, the true story of True Stories. Since we're getting close to, believe it or not, the 25th year anniversary of that film. I think you know, David, because apparently you're reading my email, but uh, <laughs> people email me all the time with questions about movies, but they also ask me questions about their career or their lives, and I always want to help out, but I'm aware that it's almost impossible to give good advice. Uh, it's not even safe to tell people to eat more vegetables. I knew this one girl in college who wanted to lose weight and become a model, and she was told to cut out fats for a while and stick to an all-vegetable diet. And she lost weight, but she turned orange from all the carrot juice she was drinking. And she never became a model, but she did get a job in the juice bar. This is only one of a thousand of examples of why it's hard to really know what's on the other end of any path we take. And it is called the unintended consequences. Unintended consequences can be good, they can be bad, but they always come as a complete surprise. When Beth wrote Crimes of the Heart, there were several unintended consequences. One was that many people felt that her voice was their voice, and they wanted to meet her. And this cut across all socioeconomic groups, from ranchers in Montana to novelists in Manhattan. Everybody wanted to meet Beth. Crimes was one of those rare pieces that struck a chord as being great entertainment and high art at the same time. Two of the people who absolutely loved Beth's writing were Jonathan Demme, yes, the man who would eventually direct Silence of the Lambs, and Evelyn Purcell. Jonathan and Evelyn also had a very strange pedigree. They spent their early years making high-camp action films with Roger Corman, Jonathan wrote and directed Caged Heat, and Evelyn produced that film. And they also worked on films that were high art. Jonathan had just directed Melvin and Howard. Uh, Evelyn was second unit director on that one. Well, the four of us met in Hollywood, and we seemed to really hit it off. And Evelyn broke away with Beth and started asking her about her writings and wondering if Beth had any other scripts lying around that Evelyn could direct. And that left me alone with Jonathan. It is probably an impossibility to sit with Jonathan Demi and not be charmed out of your shoes. Jonathan has the energy of a 10-year-old who just won the school science fair. He's fast. He's funny. He seemed to be interested in every subject from the mighty to the mundane and could speak about them with equal passion. And it didn't take long before we found common ground. After about five minutes of small talk, we started an aggressive debate on the strengths and weaknesses of one of the great video games of all time, Defender, and its newly released sequel, Stargate. Jonathan became an expert at getting extra lives. Both games were very hard, and I asked him how he was able to do it, and Jonathan said, practice. I was so admiring of Jonathan's answer because it meant he had lots of quarters, but not so. He explained that since he was now a successful Hollywood director, he bought a Defender game for his office, and he played it often for meditation, as well as the satisfaction of killing things. Jonathan said he was about to buy a Stargate game as well, and he invited me over to play any time. Now, I not only admired him, he was a god. Over the next few weeks, the four of us met occasionally for dinner, Evelyn wanted to direct a script Beth had written called The Moon Watcher. I wanted Jonathan to tell me about the software glitches in the Defender Code that, if I exploited, would make me almost invincible. I would have been pleased if that was the extent of the unintended consequences of Crimes of the Heart. Unlimited free games on Defender. But unintended consequences have the physical properties of water. 
they keep moving despite your intentions. One day, Beth and I were walking from her exercise class, and Jonathan drove up beside us, honked, scared us to death, asked us what we were up to. We gave our stock answer, nothing. And then he asked us if we wanted to go to the academy to see a screening of what he was working on. First rule of success in Hollywood, don't say no. 98% of the time saying yes will open a door you never even knew existed. Only about 2% of the time will you end up in a human trafficking ring. We headed over to the Academy on Wilshire. Now this is where all of the movies are screened for the Academy Awards. Beth and I had never been here. We entered the lobby. It was a palace. Red carpeting, gold trim on everything. Jonathan led us to a huge stairway leading up to the theater, and on each side of the staircase was a giant gold statue of Oscar. And I was thinking about the books that would be written about this place when it was discovered by archaeologists 5,000 years from now under a cow pasture. I imagine they would speculate over the brutal pagan rites that were performed here in the name of the great golden one. On the way up the stairs... Jonathan asked us if we were fans of the group Talking Heads. Now, Beth and I had heard of the group, but we weren't really hep enough to be on top of popular culture. We spent most of our time listening to Billie Holiday records, and anything after World War II, we had to rely on RGFs, or recommendations from gay friends. I told Jonathan I knew who David Byrne was because I had seen him sing Psycho Killer on television, and I was wondering if the song was autobiographical. Jonathan smiled and said, you can ask him yourself. Jonathan opened the doors to the huge empty theater, and there was David Byrne waiting for us. Down front was Jerry Harrison, Tina Weymouth, Chris Franz. Other than the seven of us, the entire 1,000-seat theater was empty. Jonathan introduced Beth and me to David. David looked at us very seriously, smiled ever so slightly, and nodded. Jonathan said we were ready to start. Beth and I sat down. The lights went out. And for the next two and a half hours, we watched Jonathan's newest film, Stop Making Sense. It hadn't been released yet, and they were still in the process of final editing and tweaking. It was sensory overload. Beth and I weren't familiar with any of the songs. We had never been at the Academy. We had never met a rock and roll star, and we never sat in an empty movie theater before. It was all too much. The music, the performances were riveting. And when the movie ended, Jonathan asked if Beth and me wanted to go out and eat with the gang. We went to a place on the Sunset Strip, uh, and that's where we got to meet David and Tina and Jerry and Chris more appropriately. I think everyone in the group was very happy that real people who weren't fans saw the movie and were excited. But truthfully, it's a very easy movie to be excited about. I still think it's one of the great rock and roll movies ever made because it's one of the few of that genre that doesn't focus on the circus of rock and roll, or the performers, but the songs themselves. I felt like I knew everyone in the movie from the music, and that's rare. That is Jonathan's gift. And the music is great. Imagine having never heard the songs, Life During Wartime, Take Me to the River, Burning Down the House, Once in a Lifetime, Heaven, Slippery People, and so many more, and then hearing them all at once, on a gigantic screen, beautifully shot, stereophonic sound, our heads were exploding. It was nuclear. But David was never one to be content with compliments. I had a feeling that for David, praise was, at its best, something to be endured. And at its worst, a terrible waste of time. He was always on the clock. He pulled me aside and said, I want you to talk to me about the movie. Tell me what's wrong. Tell me where it lost your attention. I want you to be brutal. Don't worry about my feelings. I want criticism. I knew right away David wasn't an actor. We talked for an hour or so going through each song, each scene. No matter how much David begged for criticism, I was hard-pressed to find anything. Beth and I went home that night still spinning from having reaped the benefits of unintended consequences. 
Beth got a call a couple days later to go over to David's house. Apparently, he lived right down the street from us in the Hollywood Hills. He was interested in hiring her as a writer for a new film project. Beth came back a couple hours later with the sort of Beth look on her face. It was a combination of confusion and amusement. I asked her how the meeting went. Beth shook her head and said, That David Byrne is something. Did you know he's an artist? I said, Well, yeah. Beth shook her head emphatically. No, no, no. I mean he's an artist. He can draw really well. He had his entire wall covered in pictures. All of these fine little drawings with pencil. Some of them were really funny. I asked, What of? Beth raised her eyebrows and laughed and said, Well, you got me. I think it's the movie he wants to write. He wants it to be about the drawings. I don't know. I told him you would be better at coming up with stories than me. I'm good at characters and making up things in my head. Anyway, he may call you. With that, Beth headed for the kitchen to get a Diet Coke. I felt all shaky inside. The phone rang. It was David Byrne. He asked me to come over to his house. He said he had some drawings he wanted to show me. I went over to David's place the next morning. The first thing that struck me as noteworthy was that there was nothing that the average human in the 20th century would identify as furniture anywhere. It was uncluttered to the point that it looked like David and his girlfriend Bonnie may have snuck through an open window a month ago and set up shop in an abandoned house. There were only a couple horizontal spaces visible to the naked eye. There was one of those rented rectangular tables with the legs you pull down, lock into place up against the living room wall. And there were a couple of closed metal folding chairs resting up against it. But there was no sofa. There was no television. There was no lazy boy. There were no newspapers in a corner or shoes in the middle of the kitchen. There appeared to be no food, no crumbs, no cats, no pillows, no sign of human life as we know it. In the main room of the house were all of the drawings Beth had mentioned. It was like a comic book Sistine Chapel. They covered the walls. There had to be at least a hundred five-by-seven-inch pencil drawings scotch-taped in rows. These drawings were artistically something in between a doodle and Albrecht Durer from the German Renaissance. They reminded me a little of Art Crumb. I could see what Beth meant when she said they were funny, because there was a lot of humor and character in each sketch. I asked David what the drawings were. He said the last time the talking heads were on tour, he used to clip out all the odd stories from those newspapers you see at the checkout stands in grocery stores and 7-Elevens. You know, the, <laughs> the newspapers that featured true stories of the man who was killed by his television? and the farmer who had hiccups for 50 years, or the girl who befriended a weed whacker. He said it amused him traveling around the country, thinking, what if all these things really were true? He thought it would make a good movie if somehow he could find some way to scotch tape all of these true stories together. In fact, he thought that'd be a good name for the movie, True Stories. I said I thought the drawings were very good. David hardly responded. I asked him where he learned to draw. He said he had started out as an artist at the Rhode Island School of Design. I was looking at the wall of drawings, and David said quietly, Do you think you could come up with a movie in these drawings? My heart was jumping up and down. The thought of working on a movie with David Byrne? But my mind was telling me I didn't have any idea what I was doing or how I would do it. I told David, Let me look at them for a minute. That minute turned into two hours. I studied all of the drawings. I just looked. I didn't try to think. 
If I had a question, I asked David, but otherwise the room was quiet. David was very comfortable with silence. I told them that I would go home and think about it. If I came up with anything, I would write it down. If he liked it, he could hire me. If he didn't, he could keep my notes anyway. I went back down the street to our house. Beth was waiting and said, gosh, you were gone a long time. I said, I know. She said, what did David say? I said, nothing. David doesn't talk much. Beth said, I know. He seems shy. I said, I don't know how shy he is, but did you think it was weird he didn't have any furniture? Beth said, well, I figured it was because he has everything back in New York. I said, probably. And then Beth added, unless you think he's from space, do you think that's a possibility? I mean, the empty house, the drawings, the music, and those eyes. Maybe he doesn't need furniture on his planet. I said, it's possible. But if he is from space, I'm assuming he's come in peace because the music is just way too good. Beth asked, are you writing the movie? I said, I'm going to see if I come up with anything today. And uh, as of right now, I have no idea. I went back to my little room that I called my study and sat at what I called my computer in those dark days, which was a Mac 512K. Yes. And I wrote an outline for a movie called True Stories. My idea was that the movie already had a lot of ideas. They were all on David's wall. All he really needed was a stage. Being a Texan, I was aware that our fair state was about to celebrate its 150th birthday, and I thought, hey, that could be a good stage. In fact, any celebration could be an excuse to get all of those crazy characters and ideas gathered in one place. Then you didn't really need a plot to move the movie forward. You had a timeline instead. Every party has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Another advantage of having open architecture for the movie, it would make it a lot easier to throw in songs anywhere. Songs. Songs. Songs is what the whole movie would be about. The more I thought about it, the more I liked it. Side note. Whenever I work on a part in acting, I try to describe myself to myself. You know, who I'm going to play in the movie. And the closer I am to understanding my character, the fewer words I have to use. If I can describe the essence of my character in one sentence, I'm happy. But if I can get it down to one word, I'm ecstatic. As I listened to the music of the Talking Heads that day, the word that kept coming up to me was celebration. I worked into the night typing any and every idea I had. The next morning, I went over to see David. I handed him 35 pages of notes, dialogue snippets, and outline. He thanked me. He said he would look it over, and he was true to his word. David called me before noon and said he liked the ideas and asked if I wanted to work on the script. I said I would. I asked if I could come back and look at the drawings again. David said, come by anytime you like. I hung up the phone and started screaming. At this point, I had no idea if I would succeed or fail, but I knew it was an opportunity that came once in a lifetime. I told Beth, we both started jumping up and down in the living room, and I thought starting a project about celebration with a celebration seemed apropos. I said I was going back over to David's to look at the drawings. Beth said, while I was there, why don't I invite David over for dinner? I went over and I thanked him for the opportunity to work on the project and invited him over for a barbecue that night. He said he would love to come by. I started looking at the drawings again, and I asked what I felt was the big question. The music. What songs was David going to put in the movie? Burning Down the House? Take Me to the River? David said absolutely not. The movie was going to have all new songs. He said he had only written one so far. And he pulled out his guitar and started playing. I recall it had a snappy rhythm and a lot of bar chords. I'm a pushover for bar chords. There's nothing like a bar chord to say a guitar is your friend. While he was playing the intro, he said that we could talk later about where the songs would go as the script developed. But he was certain he wanted this song near the beginning of the movie. He called the song Wild Wild Life. 
I sat in David's living room listening. As he sang and he played, all I could think of was, damn, this is good. I mean, this could be one of the best songs I've ever heard. He should try to get this made. Oh, right. He is getting it made. I'm wearing It was a beautiful evening. I've always been of the opinion that nothing says welcome like fire, as long as it's a controlled burn. This has been true throughout human history, from prehistoric hunters telling tales of the mastodon that got away, to birthday cakes and candles. Consequently, anything that I could ignite was burning. I had the grill going, I had the fireplace going, candles on the table were lit. I was so happy, the thought of wishes never crossed my mind. They had already been granted. I had spent the day writing. From David's drawings, I made a master list of characters. I started taking story notes beside each one. There was the wannabe country singer, the computer guy, the psychic, the scientist. From my point of view, David had already provided the madness. Now I was going to try to provide the method. During those years... I felt like it was never enough to feel great about your life. There wasn't anything beautiful enough or inspiring enough. There was never a success that was satisfying enough that didn't call for some sort of augmentation from the chemical world. Taking drugs is one of the highest forms of selfishness. It only wears the clothes of celebration, but at its heart, it separates, it isolates. It is a thief. It steals you from you. Right before David arrived, I ran to my room and took a little hit of cocaine. And I began to feel its numbing effect combined with what seemed to be the energy of a train jumping from the tracks. But it wasn't real energy. It was borrowed from my future life, and it would have to be repaid. With interest. I heard a commotion in the other room. David had arrived. I ran down the hallway. I greeted him. He was in a great mood. He was beaming. He said he spent so much time on the road, he was always grateful to have a home-cooked meal. We sat down outside by the pool and jacuzzi. Yes, at this point in time, I was the guy who lived in the Hollywood Hills and had all of those parties people dream about. The parties where strangers come over and run around naked before they throw up on your floor and steal things from your bedroom. David looked out at the yard He said he was shooting a new video for MTV for a song called Road to Nowhere. And there was a scene he wanted to shoot in a swimming pool. He wanted to know if we would mind him shooting in ours. We told him any time. Any time was fine. Side note. And he did. If you ever catch that video of Road to Nowhere, that is our backyard and pool from that bygone era. I started cooking dinner. I was feeling the evening, sipping some wine, and I decided I would include David in my private celebration. I told him I had some cocaine if he wanted some. David looked at me steadily with those huge alien eyes and said, No, I don't do that. Even though I didn't feel judgment coming from David, I was embarrassed. Not only embarrassed for what I knew was my weakness— but for something worse. People with addictions rely on what I call poor man's redemption. (laughs) Rather than stopping your own abuse, you try to get others involved. It operates under the premise of, why worry about the truth when everybody lies? But we were making a movie called True Stories. The truth is, 
I think of all the things I learned from that period of time, the most lasting was not the job or the experience, but it was encountering David's discipline. It was a piece of advice I would use in my emails decades later. Without fear of waking unintended consequences, the bottom line is, if you want to achieve anything real, you have to do it. You have to work. Diversions were just that, a side trip. The real joy is always in the task. The evening turned to night. We had finished dinner. We were only lit by candlelight on the back porch, and the three of us started talking about the characters in the movie, and David started laughing about the fortune-teller psychic character. Beth lit up and said, Well, Stephen can tell you all about that. Did you know he was psychic? David looked at me again with those huge alien eyes, this time in amusement, and he said, You're psychic? Pause. This is not a subject I ever like to talk about. To this day, I'm very unsure of what actually happened back in Texas, what the truth was. It has the double weight of being both silly and scary. ESP experiences fall into the same category as hitting a hole-in-one in golf. I mean, we all believe it can happen, even though our minds tell us it's probably impossible. The fact that ESP is the fodder for countless television and film projects has not made it more believable, just more mundane. The story that happened to me was impossible, but it happened. It's true, and it's the story I told David Byrne that night at dinner. I was 19 years of age, at the beginning of my sophomore year at SMU. It was in the fall, and one of our classes was going on a retreat. Now, I wasn't sure what a retreat was. I was with the same students with the same teacher I had at school, so the only real difference was geography. We were going to have our class by a lake at night around a big bonfire. The way I looked at it, the only real differences in the retreat would be that we would be closer to insects and further from toilets than we were used to. We all sat under the stars around the fire. I should mention that even though this was the age of Woodstock and hippies and free love, it wasn't for me. I was still a kid from Oak Cliff who watched Hercules movies with his mom on Sunday afternoon and collected rocks. Anything that was referred to directly or indirectly in the Beatles' White Album was off my list. I hardly even drank beer. But that was not true of my classmates. They thought the retreat would be a good excuse to sneak off into the bushes and light up, which, judging from the smell of the skunkweed coming from the nearby marsh, they did. The retreat officially began, and we sat under the stars around the fire. Our teacher told us to hold hands, concentrate, and say whatever came into our heads, just the first thing that jumped out. We were going to go in order, starting over by our teacher, who sat directly opposite of me, and the amazing revelations around the fire went something like this. The first person said, stars. The next person said, water. The next person said, weed. The next person said, hobbit. The next person said, far out. The next person said, oh, he took my word. I was going to say far out. Can I still say that? And our teacher said in a very calming voice, yes, yes, you can say far out if you want to. Okay, then. Far out. The line was getting closer and closer to me. My mind was completely blank. My classmates offered up their first thoughts, night, shooting star, hobbit, hobbit. Then it was my turn. I looked at our teacher, and out of my mouth flew, I get that you're not who you say you are. Everyone in the circle stopped and looked at me as if I was Bilbo Baggins. Our teacher stared at me through the bonfire, and a very calm voice said, What do you mean, Stephen? I said very matter-of-factly, You are not who you say you are. You have another name, and your initials are MK or ML. There was a slight break in the action, and then our teacher said, Next up. The girl after me said, Lake, and so on. The retreat ended. We were all getting ready to drive back to civilization and indoor plumbing when our teacher came up to me. 
In a very gentle but concerned way, he asked me why I said what I said. I shook my head. I said, I don't have a clue. He said, Stephen, what you said is true. I looked at him. There was only curiosity in his eyes, and he told me he had an assumed name, and his real name was M.K. I felt sick to my stomach. He asked me if sometime I would like to come over to his house. He believed in ESP, and he wanted to try something with me. About a week later, I went to see him over at his home. He thanked me very warmly for coming by. He said he had a Japanese prayer stool that was supposed to be a very powerful tool for psychics. To be honest, I felt it was a little like the retreat. Two dopey four words. But I liked my teacher a lot. He was a kind and intelligent man, and I was willing to play along if it made him happy. He pulled out the prayer stool. We sat down. We held hands over it. He said, Stephen, just let me know if you feel anything. And again, I said very calmly, well, I already know what I know. I let go of his hands and said, there's a five-year-old boy by the fireplace and a 40-year-old woman on the phone in the kitchen. My teacher never broke his gaze with me. He paled and swallowed. In the same quiet, measured voice, he said, I had a five-year-old nephew who was playing by that fireplace, and before I knew what happened, he ran out of the front door and was hit by a car in the street. On my sister's 40th birthday, she called me on that phone in the kitchen and committed suicide. I wanted to burst into tears. I had never been so scared in my life. My teacher asked me how I did what I did. I had no idea. It was not like in the movies. There was no THX Dolby sound, no flashing lights. I just heard a sound like a voice from another room. And then I repeated what I heard. I left my teacher's house. I had no one I could tell but the girl I had recently fallen in love with, a girl named Beth. I told her, and Beth thought it was wonderful. She never doubted it was true for a second. She asked me what I knew about her. I asked her to give me her hands, which I think was more a cheap ploy to hold her than anything otherworldly. I told her I heard three tones from her in the male range. She asked me what I meant. I had no idea. Beth thought this could be a good money-making scheme. We could charge a quarter or even a dollar for me to tell people what I heard. Over the next weeks, Beth started bringing people from our drama class over to me in the green room of the theater department. I heard what I called tones from people. Most people only had one. Some people had two. Sometimes the tones were harmonious, sometimes not. And then it was like I kind of heard what those tones meant. It seemed like it was all going to be good fun in theory. In practice, it was not. I told people what I heard, and it was not always pleasant. Some people left in tears. Some people were angry. All were creeped out. And the worst part was that the more I did it, the more I heard. The unintended consequence was it became awful to go to restaurants or movies. I heard tones everywhere. Now, I'm completely aware of how crazy all this sounds. I found the whole experience overwhelming enough that I refused to do it anymore. So I told this story to David that night, and he just said, Wow, really? I said, Yeah. He said, It's true. I said, Yeah, and I don't do it anymore. David said, Well, how did you stop it? I said, I don't know that I did. It was like a voice from another room. I just closed the door.
David wanted to do some research for the movie and maybe even look at locations and he wanted to know if I could help show him around the Dallas area. I said, absolutely. This set the stage for one of the strangest meetings of energy from opposing galaxies I've ever witnessed. The meeting of David Byrne and my mother. (laughs) David greeted mom very politely, came into our living room. Mom said, oh, it's so nice to meet friends of Stephen from Los Angeles. David nodded. Yes, ma'am. So, David, are you an actor, too? David continued very quietly with great respect. No, ma'am. I'm a rock and roll singer. Oh, I see. And where do you sing? Um, all over the world. Oh, that's so nice. So you make a living at it. Uh, yes, ma'am. Dad chimed in. Hey, well, maybe you could give Stephen a job. Without cracking a smile or missing a beat, David said, I think I just did, sir. Mom looked over again and said, oh, that's wonderful. David, would you like something to drink? We have Coke, Dr. Pepper, Sprite, Diet Dr. Pepper, Diet Sprite, coffee, tea, water, orange juice. We have a beer. I can make some lemonade. Oh, no. It was the list of beverages. David got a broadside without a warning. He looked at me with a certain amount of confusion and turned back to my mom and said, Excuse me, Mrs. Tobolowski, what was that? Oh, no! I was screaming inside my head. It was too late. Mom had to start the beverage list again. We have Coke, Dr. Pepper, Diet Dr. Pepper, Sprite, Diet Sprite. David looked at me smiling. I stood up and interceded on his behalf before he made the mistake of interrupting the beverage list again. I said, David, would you like a Coke? David said, no, water's fine. Crisis averted. David and I headed out to the wilds of North Texas. I showed him Big Town Mall that at one time was advertised as the biggest mall in the world. Now I think it probably wasn't even as big as the biggest 7-Eleven in the world. We went to Fort Worth and heard some pure Texas blues at a club called The Bluebird. David was fascinated with things I never thought were special, We went to the Highland Park Cafeteria. In their day, they were famous for the huge variety of foods they had, especially vegetables. David bought one of everything and put it on the table. Then he stood on the chair and photographed the table covered with food to the amusement of all the other diners. We went to the Longhorn Ballroom that used to host the greats of country western music like Ernest Tubb and the Texas Troubadours. It was a huge corrugated tin building that used to stand next to Ed McLemore's Sportatorium that hosted wrestling matches. All gone now. David was interested in the juxtaposition of the modern and the frontier that Dallas offered. Mylar buildings with cattle grazing beside them. For David, simple observation was the door to imagination. He was a quiet observer and a good listener. We had a wonderful time in Texas and came back to Los Angeles, and David asked me how I felt about trying to put a screenplay down with Beth as my writing partner. I thought it was the best of all possible worlds. Then David said he wanted a first draft in 19 days. After the initial rush of terror, we said we would try. We split up the scenes. Beth took one. I took one. We worked nonstop, and we turned in a draft to our producer, Gary Getzman, and then pause. We heard nothing. No notes. No new scene ideas. Nothing from David. Nothing from Gary. Beth and I were afraid we stunk up the joint with the script, and David was just too embarrassed to say anything. A month turned into two. Turned into ten. It was almost a year later when I saw David on his bike riding the same hills I had walked the pooch. I yelled out to him, and he waved. He said, sorry, I haven't been in touch, but I rewrote that whole script, and then I rewrote it back again. You may not recognize it. I yelled out the window, whatever you want, David, it's your show. That's what I want. He said, well, I'll send over a copy of the script for you to look at, and I have been writing songs I wrote one I want you to hear. 
The light changed, and off David went. The movie office sent over a script, and Beth and I read it. And I think I counted, we still had about a dozen lines in the movie that that I recognized we had written. My biggest contribution was the outline. It still occurred at the 150th anniversary of Texas. Big Town Mall was still in it. The Mylar buildings with the cattle grazing nearby, that was still there. I think we were afraid that we had let David down. David never made us feel that way. He just operated at such a high level you wanted to please him. And that would have been the end of the story. But it wasn't. David came by the house and had a tape of a song he had written and recorded for the movie. He was grinning when he said, See what you think. As it turned out, my biggest contribution wasn't as a writer of true stories, but as an unlikely subject. In the new version of the script, the fortune teller psychic was able to tell the future and read people's lives by hearing tones. It was my story, the story I told David that night at our house over a year ago. The music played. It was wonderful. It was a celebration. It was everything I could have dreamed a story of mine could be. He called the song Radiohead. It was featured on the album and when the movie came out, and in a most curious moving of the XY axis, it became the inspiration of a current rock and roll band that took that song as its name, Radiohead. I wonder if that band has any idea that their moment before zero was an evening by candlelight in 1983 and a true story about a college sophomore who heard something beyond his understanding. I think they would be pleased. Before the movie was released, David called up and asked if he could put Beth or me down as screenwriters. Since he was starring and directing and writing all the songs, he didn't want to make it look like it was a vanity production. I said, sure. And I asked Beth what she wanted to do, and she said for me to put my name down first. So I ended up the screenwriter of True Stories by default. In grammar, there's a tendency to think of past and future tense as the same thing. Just with a different time frame, I saw, I will see. Nothing could be further from the truth. Time changes the meaning of everything it touches. What you saw in the past almost never has any relation to what you remember in the future. During the day, we tend to measure the importance of things by box office numbers and reviews. I guess by that yardstick, True Stories was only a moderate success. In the past tense, the talking heads went their separate ways. David became interested in Brazilian music as an inspiration and moved on to new creative pursuits. I got so many phone calls from fans of the movie, it marked the last time my number was ever in a phone book. In the present tense, I remembered David's eyes and his desire for perfection. I remember how courteous he was to my mother in the face of limitless drink possibilities. In the future tense, I remember the music. Music never ages or dies. Be it Beethoven or Byrne, it reflects a time in which it was written and also relates a truth for anyone who will listen. When David wrote Radiohead, he captured a period of time in my life like an insect in amber. It was a time that, in the past tense, scared me very much, and in the present tense remains a mystery. But he took that fear, that sound of a voice in another room, and turned it into love, into celebration. There are no words for that. There's only gratitude, and of course, a song.
That was The Voice from Another Room, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, I'm sure the fans and members of Radiohead will be interested to know that uh, their namesake comes from the half-conscious ramblings of uh, a young Stephen Tobolowsky. <laughs> well, I was, I was more than half-conscious. Oh, you know, I should mention, too, that I believe in honor of the 25-year anniversary of True Stories, Talking Heads is getting together again, and I believe they're going to do a nationwide tour starting in 2011, which cool. is exciting. So you can maybe hear Radiohead live. Very cool. And uh, you can tell them how they really got their name. Uh, Until I th- David I, has me arrested. I think right. if you see Radiohead, you should go up to uh, the people, in random members of the band, uh, grab them by the lapel, shake them, and explain to them that Stephen Tobolowsky <laughs> named Radiohead. That is that is advice I have that, for everyone who's listening to this right now. That is so me. That is exactly what I Go I'm grab doing. Tom York and just yes. shake him by the lapels. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> well, Stephen, uh, how can people tell you uh, how their stories have led to famous bands being named? I would love people to reach me at com. That's T as in Tom, O, B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y. Uh, com, and there you'll see my email address ways to contact me in Facebook and Twitter and uh, just announcing once again that drum roll yes Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party is downloadable now on iTunes thank goodness very exciting you can find me and everything else I do at slashfilm.com or davechen.net thank you guys so much for listening to the Tobolowsky Files we'll see you guys next time adios The sound of a brand new world